and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Is anyone else a gardener? I've loved spending time in my garden this spring and summer as we are quarantined. And now that I'm back in the office, I'm feeling extra blessed because my office overlooks the Better Homes and Gardens test garden. And it's so beautiful right now. And since they're not allowing visitors, it feels like I'm getting my own private peek at this beautiful oasis. And the reason I bring up gardening is because the show's theme today is all about displaying your quilts outside. So we're going to be chatting about how to display your quilts safely outdoors so that you can enjoy them as you spend more time outside. We're also going to dive into the history of English paper piecing and learn more about some marking tools. Then a member of our staff will share a fun project that she's working on right now and will give some quick tips for anyone who wants to have their favorite store featured in Quilt Sampler magazine. And just a reminder, most of our staff is still working from home. So a lot of this podcast was recorded over the phone, so the auto, the audio quality isn't perfect, but thanks for understanding. Now let's dive in. The weather is warm, and if you're like me, you're probably spending more and more time outside. Now is such a great time to bring some of your quilts outside, not only for you to enjoy, but also to bring joy to others who may be venturing by your home too. So right when the stay-at-home orders began in the United States, there was like a display your quilt outside day. I can't exactly remember the details of the date or what its exact name was. Uh, Hasn't time really flown by this year, right? I can't really keep track of days anymore. But anyway, it was a fun way for quilters around the country to display their quilts in their front yards to spread color and joy to everyone who passed by in their neighborhoods. This is an idea I truly love for a few reasons. First, I usually find myself spending less time in my sewing room during the summer, and we have less use for quilts on our beds and couches because it's so warm. So this opens up the possibilities for showing off your quilts in a different way. Second, It's a fun way to share more about yourself with neighbors. So let me give an example. We've lived in our house for two years now, and we're still getting friendly with the neighbors. I was out a few weeks ago hanging a quilt from our front porch, and many of our neighbors stopped to watch, comment on the quilt, or just give a friendly wave. And it actually became a surprising talking point for one of my neighbors. So turns out our next door neighbor is a quilter. So he's lived in his house for over 40 years and recently lost his wife, who was a quilter. When she died three years ago, he made a quilt for her to be buried with. And since then, he's continued making quilts for his grandkids. 
it opened up a really fun conversation about his local uh, favorite quilt shop, his style of quilting, what machine he has, and he even ran inside and grabbed a quilt that he was working on, and we <laughs> held it up to each other from, you know, more than six feet away so that um, I could see what he was working on. And I'm always so touched to see how quilters reach out to others through their craft. So, by displaying a quilt outside, you may meet some new quilting buddies in your neighborhood that you didn't even know you had. And while I love displaying a quilt on my front porch, there are a checklist worth of things that I consider before putting one of my precious quilts outside. So I wanted to talk through the things I think about a little more. First, I check the weather. Is it going to rain? <laughs> if there's even a small chance of bad weather, I will save the quilt display for another day. There's no reason to chance it. Is it pollen season? So my front porch sits directly under a tree that drops pollen so that I avoid putting my quilt out there during that early springtime when it does that. Otherwise, my quilt would be covered in a thin layer of yellow dust. <laughs> so will your quilt be sitting under an area where birds congregate? If so, you could be in for kind of a messy situation, if you know what I mean. And then the last thing I think about is, will the quilt sit in direct sunlight? So my front porch gets a lot of sunlight throughout the day, which is okay for displaying quilts, but over time, sunlight can weaken threads and fade the fabrics. So just make sure that you're rotating your quilts on display often if they're getting a lot of sunlight. So if these conditions are right for me to display a quilt, I still take a few extra little precautions. So I like to lay an old bed sheet down on my porch railing before I put my quilt on it. The bed sheet protects my quilts from any water droplets, dirt, or even the wood stain on my deck. So I just fold the bed sheet to the size of the quilt and cover the railing with it before setting my quilt on top of it. You can never be too careful, and this extra step hardly takes any time. I do one more thing to ensure the safety of my quilt. I pin it in place so it doesn't blow away. I was known for being very windy. That's where <laughs> I live. Uh, we don't have any mountains or barely any hills here, so it does get very windy. Uh, so I am very adamant about <laughs> pinning it so it doesn't blow but I just, I drape the quilt over the railing so that one side hangs to overlap the other. Then I just take a few basting pins I have laying around and I pin the quilt to itself around the railing. This just gives me peace of mind that the quilt won't blow away or blow to the ground and get dirty. One more thing, I would never put a quilt outside that I couldn't easily wash or that I would be devastated if it was stolen. So your heirloom quilts or your special projects, they're best displayed inside. So although porches are one of the most obvious ways to display a quilt outside, I asked some of my coworkers if they had any other ways they display their quilts, and they had some fun ideas I wanted to share with you. Elizabeth puts a table topper on her patio table. Now this is another great example of not putting a quilt on your table that you can't wash, especially if you plan to eat or drink at your patio. So she has the suggestion of uh, basing your patio table quilt off a tree skirt pattern. 
so the hole in the center can then wrap around an umbrella that sits in the middle of your patio table, which I think is such a clever idea. Now Beth creates a backyard oasis with her quilts. So she likes to read later in the day out in her hammock. So she takes a quilt outside with her. She brings a small poof for her little kitty to sleep on and an outdoor side table to set her drink and book on. It is such a cute setup and it sounds so relaxing and comfy. Jody likes to display her quilts outside with flowers from her garden and some collections of decor items. So for example, she'll hang a quilt off a chair on her porch and set a basket of lilacs nearby. Or she'll hang a quilt outside and place a chair holding her collection of fiesta ware in front of it, topped with a small vase of blooming flowers. So Elizabeth, Beth, Jody, and I all filmed a little video of our outdoor display so that you can see them. We know it's hard to visualize all of these ideas, so visit our show notes and we'll put the links to the videos there. So we are so excited to share all these tips about displaying quilts outdoors because this week's Sweet Quilty Home Challenge is to display a quilt outdoors. For those who don't know, our Sweet Quilty Home Challenge is something we're hosting on the podcast and social media. So this challenge will last for 10 weeks this summer. It started July 6th and it goes to September 13th. This program focuses on creating your best home, a beautiful place to relax and be creative, and each week we'll issue a challenge. One small step you can take throughout the week to brighten your home and set your space up for sewing success. If you participate, you can use the hashtag SweetQuiltyHome on Instagram, and you can also visit our show notes for a link to the Sweet Quilty Home page on our website, where we'll list details of each week's challenge and a lot of helpful content, videos, and patterns to get you started. So all of the podcast episodes during these 10 weeks will coordinate with the week's challenge. So keep listening in. We're going to take a quick ad break, but hang tight. We'll be back to talk about the history of hexagons and quilts and marking tools. And we're back. I'm now here with Jody Sanders, the editor of American Patchwork and Quilting for Collector's Corner, a segment where we explore antique quilts, notions, or quilting history. Hi, Jody. What are we talking about today? Hello. Well, we're here to talk about my favorite shape, and that's the hexagon. So I want you to do a little research and just kind of take a look at the history of the hexagon and when those kinds of quilts started uh, being made. So when we're hand piecing using a method of wrapping and basting fabric around paper templates and then whip stitching the pieces together. That's called English paper piecing. And one of the most recognizable shapes used in EPP is the six-sided hexagon. So for many of us, we may think of the 1930s and a traditional grandmother's flower garden quilt that's made with hexagons and pastel colors. But the origin of combining hexagons to make a quilt dates back into England and the late 1700s. The International Quilt Museum in Lincoln has a quilt made uh, that was made in England and dated about 1796 in its collection. So uh, these quilts go back several years and even hundreds of years. So earlier quilts were known as mosaic, honeycomb, 
or six-sided quilts. And one of the earliest hexagon patterns was published in Godey's Ladies Book, which was a periodical that was published in the, and this particular pattern was published in the mid-1800s. So mosaic quilts were sometimes charm quilts even, with each hexagon in the quilt being a different fabric. And there's some really fine examples of pieces being arranged by color to kind of give that bullseye effect. So you start with one color in the center and then work your way around adding pieces, but each round would be a different color and a different piece of fabric. By the mid-1800s, after the sewing machine was introduced, the mosaic patchwork technique was beginning to become less popular, and it was sometimes only used for a portion of the quilt, often a center medallion. Women had fewer mentors to teach them uh, fine hand stitching techniques, and the quality of hand sewing declined. Now, in the 1930s, the hexagons were beginning to be used in the grandmother's flower garden pattern. And these quilts had a center hexagon that was then surrounded by six print or solid hexagons, and then another round of 12 hexagons around that. The centers were often yellow to represent the flower center, and between each flower was a row of colored solid hexagons to represent the path. Now, a green background might symbolize the garden, while a white one would represent a white picket fence. One of the most well-known makers of hexagon quilts in the United States was a man by the name of Albert Small. And Albert was actually born in England and he immigrated to the US when he was 18 years old. He had a lot of different hobbies. He was kind of a very eclectic person, so he liked to paint. He collected lots of things, including stamps and salt and pepper shakers. Uh, he did carpentry and he was also a tattoo artist. Now, his first quilt that he made was a challenge from his wife and daughter because he had been teasing them and their other quilting friends about the workmanship on the quilts that they were making. And they basically told him, if you think you can do it better, go right ahead. And so he did. He took on the challenge. His first quilt that he made was with half-inch hexagons and contained over 36,000 pieces. The second quilt he made was with a little bit smaller hexagons. Those are 3 8 inch and it had over 63,000 pieces. Wow, so they didn't really call him Albert Smalls for nothing, huh? Exactly. <laughs> and then his last quilt he completed in 1944, and that was made with one quarter inch pieces and had 1,000, no, 123,200 hexagons. Now, if you want to Google Albert Small hexagon quilts, you can see these amazing quilts. So contemporary quilt makers are having lots of fun with fussy cutting hexagons right now. But you know what? That's not really new. Uh, the 1796 quilt at the International Quilt Museum that I mentioned earlier, that has plenty of examples of six pieces that were all cut from the same place on a piece of cloth and then sewn together around the center hexagon. Many quilters aspired to make at least one grandmother's flower garden quilt, so you can find them in antique shops, flea markets, on eBay or Etsy, but because they're so labor intensive to make, they often weren't completed. And you can find tops or partially completed tops with fabrics and templates for pretty reasonable prices right now. Even now with our computerized machines and time-saving techniques, I still enjoy the portability and relaxing nature of sewing hexagons together by hand. Thanks, Jody. I think it's so it's becoming so popular to do English paper piecing again. We are seeing it everywhere, and 
so fun to know the history. And I can't believe Albert could make that that many quilts with that many pieces in his lifetime. They are amazing. So if you don't already follow Jody on Instagram, check her out at So More Quilts Mom. She's always posting gorgeous photos of her antique quilt collection. Thanks, Jody. Thank you. Now I'm here with Joanna Bergerino, the editor of Quilts and More magazine for Sewing Toolbox. That's a new feature here on the podcast, so I'm going to let Joanna explain it a little bit more. So I'm so excited to start this new Sewing Toolbox segment. There are so many cool, helpful sewing notions on the market, but the downside of that is the sheer amount can be overwhelming when you get to the store and have to select one. I get a lot of questions such as, do I really need product X, Y, or Z? Which type is best for which project? Or even, what's that for exactly? So my goal with this segment is to give you a general idea of what's on the market and what each type of product is typically used for. I'll also touch upon some features to look for so that when you're at the store staring at the aisle of products, you have some idea of how to narrow things down and make an informed choice. That sounds great. So what topic are we covering today? So today we're going to be covering marking tools. Nothing like starting off with one of the most controversial topics out there. <laughs> I'm, going to be, I'm going to be honest, I'm always hesitant to recommend marking tools to people because if something does go wrong with your project, especially if you're marking a quilt top for quilting, I'm going to feel personally responsible when I find out it didn't work. The goal with marking tools is you want the lines to disappear when you're done. First and foremost, always, 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 Test your marking tool on a scrap from your actual project. I can't stress this enough. Uh, be sure to test it thoroughly too. So for example, if you live in a cold climate like here in Iowa, make sure the lines don't reappear when the fabric is cold. Uh, try washing your scrap and seeing if the lines reappear. So true story. I once had a marking tool take some of the dye out. I was using it on a dark red unwashed print. And then when I sewed and stitched and it was all looking beautiful, and then I realized you could still see my marking lines, even though I had stitched as carefully as I could on top of them. And it was just awful. So avoid, avoid the heartache I had and always test your scrap. So with that warning out of the way, we're going to look at six basic types of marking tools. First are air soluble pens, which are probably some of the most popular tools out there. They're best for quilting and embroidering, embroidery designs. You can often recognize these pens by their bright purple ink. Now, if it's hot and humid where you live, also like here in Iowa, keep in mind that you might be stitching on a time limit. The heat can make the lines disappear really quickly. So you're gonna have to stitch kind of fast if it's hot when you're working. Cold temperatures can also make the lines harder to remove or even make them reappear. So again, heat is something you have to consider when you're working with these pens. So next is water-soluble pens, which um, they're also pretty common. So you might recognize them, but the fact that they usually have bright blue ink, and these are similar to air-soluble pens, but you need water to remove the marks, which has the advantage of lasting longer, but also the disadvantage of being trickier to work with because you have to use that water to remove every line. One thing to keep in mind is that ironing over the ink will often make it permanent, so you want to avoid doing that. Good advice. Next up are permanent markers, which make permanent marks. That probably goes without saying. 
For fabric, I suggest a thin point and only using permanent marker on places where you want the marks to stay put, including after washing. So these are really good for quilt labels, for example, but not so much for marking designs on the top of your quilt. I also like to use these for tracing templates since they make a nice dark line and you'll see the marks, excuse me, you'll never see the marks in the finished product. So it's good to use them when you can't see them. Moving on from the most permanent type of marking tool to the least permanent, we have plastic marking tools, such as hair markers and bone folders, which can be used to mark fabric without running any risk of leaving marks behind. Press firmly to make creases that you can then follow along as you sew. It helps to have good lighting when you're using this method so that you can see the creases that you made. This is probably the safest option and it's my personal favorite. So fabric pencils with erasers are a long lasting option and they function like regular pencils, but they are made to work better on fabric. So just make sure that you test the eraser before using it to make sure that it cleanly removes the line without affecting your fabric. And extra fine point tips are also very helpful to prevent smudges when you're drawing. And finally, we're gonna talk a little bit about erasable office supply pens. Uh, this is probably the most controversial option of the six that we're covering. Yes, I've heard some horror stories. <laughs> yes, that one I mentioned earlier was actually one of those type of pens. But, um, so some like the friction pen erase with friction and they'll disappear when you apply heat to them from an iron. This tends to make them work similar to air soluble pens, but they're often easier to get a hold of and fairly cheap, so some people prefer them. The only thing is they're not designed for fabric, so they can be a little bit risky. Um, again, I know some quilters who swear by them. They say they're the best thing since sliced bread, and then others who think, why risk it after you put in all that hard work? Uh, I've used them in a pinch, and after that one horror story I shared, I've, I've been a little hesitant to keep using them. Sometimes I've had no issues, and other times I have. So um, that being said, I feel like it's never my place to tell you not to use a particular product that you want to try. It's just I've personally given up on them in favor of some products that um, are a little less likely to cause me headache. I just like not to chance it but, but you know it's an option and since some people love them i feel like they're still worth talking about so those are the six um, i've already mentioned that plastic marking tools are my favorites Lindsay, do you have any particular favorite marking tools yeah i usually go with an air soluble marking tool um those are just so easy to find and uh you know, I've always had good luck with them, although they do, the lines do sometimes, you know, disappear quickly. <laughs> so there's times I've had to redraw things when I'm not quick enough. But um, I have a fun suggestion doing it because I know you love these, uh, you know, like thrifty sewing hacks. I do. Um, well, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned you love hair markers and I have just never bought one, uh, which I just said they're not very expensive, but... Uh, the other day I needed something like that to mark straight lines on a quilt I was quilting and I actually just used a cheese spreader, which is like a just ah. tiny dull knife uh, to mark the lines just like a hair marker would work. But I think any knife would work as long as it doesn't have serrated edges, just a dull Like knife. a butter knife? Like a butter knife, yes. Yeah. So oh. it worked out great. So um, that saved me in a pinch when, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and I can't easily run to the store. <laughs> that is such a great idea. I love when you can use 
um, just everyday kitchen supplies as quilting supplies. So fun story, and I don't recommend this. I had a quilter friend who her husband used her rotary cutter as a pizza cutter and he was like they look exactly the same and oh she was a horrified i would have been horrified too but um, yeah at that point it's laugh. just a loss you have to throw it out <laughs> yeah full of sauce and yeah oh but gosh. i love your knife idea though that's that's and that's like one that you know you can still reuse the knife and your product so absolutely that's great <laughs> So we have to take a quick ad break, but don't go anywhere. After the break, Joanna will be sharing a fun project she's working on. Welcome back. Next, it's What's on Your Workspace, a segment where our staff shares the fun projects they're working on. Joanna, tell us something you're working on now. So like most people, I've been home a lot the last few months during the pandemic. And that means I've suddenly had time to work on some of those house projects I've been putting off. One of the projects was repainting my living room, dining room, and hallway. They all flow into one another, so they're all the same paint color. When I bought my house, the walls were this yellow tan color, kind of dark, and I always joke it was a little pukey looking, but um, this time I chose a better color. It's a warm tone, light tan, and then I added some bright, white trim just to make everything look really clean and bright. Um, but what I wasn't expecting is that at certain times of the day, it kind of looks peach, which was not what I was going for and was certainly a surprise. So that actually brings me to my current sewing project. They are connected. Um, I had decided to try and use a little bit of color theory to maybe tone down that peachness. Um, so I used to paint something a lot of people don't know about me. And when you paint, if you mix two complementary colors, colors that are uh, opposite each other on the color wheel, they'll neutralize each other and make gray. So that was my thought process, but I kind of forgot that, you know, when you're adding accent colors to your decor, you can't actually mix them. And two complementary colors next to each other actually have maximum contrast and really pop. So if anything, um, adding a complementary color, which is going to make that peach even more noticeable. So the peach is pretty close to pink, and the opposite of red tones, red and pink obviously, uh, is green. I always feel like red and green are the easiest complementary colors to remember because they look just like Christmas. So most of my room is light blues and aquas, and I decided to add some lime, lime green into the room's colors. Green is analogous to blue, which would feel kind of calming and harmonious, but then the green would also complement the red and pink. Um, so like I said earlier, my original goal was to neutralize, but I ended up with more contrast, but I actually kind of like it because it really makes the green accents pop and it really warms up the peach. Um, the peach is growing on me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, happy accidents, I suppose, but it really does kind of radiate warmth in the room, which really, the goal was to brighten, and I certainly ended up doing that. So, And you love um, pinks and purples, right? I do. I, I think that was part of it, where I was trying so hard to avoid pinks and purples that when I ended up with more pink, it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Even when I try to avoid it, I end up with more. But, um, so color theory out of the way. It was time to um, quilt up that project that was going to help me add green into my dining room. So one of the perks of being the editor of Quilts and More 
is that I get to start my projects early. I see them before the issue goes on newsstands. So coming up in my fall issue, which is out in late July, there's a scrappy Starblock table topper project called Season of Thanks. Now I had intended to make this project from the get-go because I just, I love scrappy Starblocks. But um, over the course of editing the project, I ended up needing to make an extra test block to verify a change that the first tester came up with. So um, obviously we do a lot of checking and double checking and triple checking math. So sometimes you end up making test blocks. It was win-win because I was already planning on making it anyway. So I made the test block in aqua, navy, and lime green, the colors I'm trying to add into my room. Um, and then I just kept making blocks until I had enough for a table runner. So the cool thing about this table topper is it has four blocks in a square pattern, but the pieced sashing forms an extra star in the middle. Uh, I did a little playing around and I was able to turn that sashing star into a block of its own. So that way I could have a little more variety in my star blocks. Um, fun fact, I think it's one of the first projects I've made that didn't have a solid white or white print in it anywhere. Wow. I know. I'm, I have white backgrounds on like everything. I haven't really gotten out of that habit. So this was the first. Um, but years ago, I bought this fabric that I thought was a cream linen. It was online and on my computer screen, it looks creamy. Uh, but when I got it, it was actually like a pale yellow green. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. What am I going to do with this like lime green yellow fabric? Um, so I put it in a drawer and forgot about it. And then I accidentally found it and was like, this is perfect because green is the goal. So <laughs> um, yeah, so I was able to use up some of that pale green linen and I'm just finishing up the last block now. Um, then I have to decide how to quilt it. So um, I'm thinking some straight line quilting. I usually gravitate toward free motion quilting, but just never hurts to try something different. And um, when I finish it, I hope to post some pictures so that everyone can see and admire it, um, especially with the issue coming out and you can compare it to the original. So where are you putting this table topper? Uh, it's going to go in my dining room. On okay. The, so. Fun. Yeah, oh. my, my table is kind of a long oval, so that's why I oh. had to change from square to a rectangle. Perfect. Thanks so much for sharing, Joanna. And I'm really looking forward to seeing pictures of it. Um, and like, now I have to it. So. Yeah, now the pressure is on. <laughs> um, and like Joanna said, the fall issue of Quilt Some More comes on sale July 31st, so keep your eyes out for it. I have a special shout out today for Quilt Sampler Magazine. So we are always looking for fantastic quilt shops to spotlight in future issues. And the deadline for the next magazine is August 1st. Now, quilt shops have to nominate themselves in our application process. But sometimes quilt shops need a little nudge from their customers to know they're worthy of being featured and that they deserve all the recognition. So if you have a favorite shop that's doing great things for their customers, please tell them to nominate themselves. We'll link to the nomination form that has some extra tips in the show notes so that you can just email them the link or message it to them on social media. And if you're a shop owner, we'd love to learn more about your shop. So please consider nominating yourself. We know quilt shops across the country have really stepped up during this pandemic, 
and we want to do everything we can to highlight local stores. Before we leave today, I wanted to share a fun opportunity for all our podcast listeners. At the end of August, we're doing a podcast show about how quilting brings us joy. And we'd love to hear a story about how quilting brings joy to your life so that we can share it on the podcast. If you'd like to share, please call and leave us a voicemail at 515-257-6870. You can also email us your story or a voice memo at apqpodcast at meredith.com. and thanks for listening. Keep in touch. American Patchwork and Quilting is on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at All People Quilt. Email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast. And if you love the American Patchwork and Quilting podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free. And don't forget to rate and review the show. It helps other quilters find us. Have a creative week.